This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Why don't we start with a prayer? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many graces you've given us and ask that in your mercy you would continue to bless us and draw us close to yourself through the indwelling of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, um, so the, the title of this talk is Image and Likeness, Personhood and Participation. So um, right off the bat, uh, you, you may have gleaned that this is about uh, the human person in the context of the Trinity. And what I'd like to do for the next 50 minutes or so um, is uh, a couple of things. One is to start out talking about some of the sources, broadly speaking, for Aquinas's, let's call it Trinitarian anthropology. That is a way of understanding grace that's rooted in an understanding of the human person as an image of the Trinity. Um, talking about the roots of some of that in St. Augustine, and then looking at Aquinas after that in uh, a couple phases. So the first has to do with Aquinas' understanding of God's relationship to creation, and in a special way, the human person is a moral agent, just according to nature. And then building on that, we'll look at God as Trinity, uh, what that entails when we look at God in and of himself, according to Aquinas, uh, the way he understands the Trinity. And then from that, we'll look at grace uh, as a final uh, close. And we'll look at the way in which Aquinas structures the spiritual life and the, the moral life of the infused virtues. That is, the, the virtues that come from participation in sanctifying grace, the virtues that we have as members of Christ's body, as uh, people who are alive in Jesus Christ. Uh, what that looks like as a special, let's call it an intensification, if you will, of Trinitarian image as a way of participating more fully in God's own life, and also a way of discovering, perhaps along the way, what it means to be a person, at least in the theological sense, after knowing ourselves more deeply as an image of God himself. Okay. All right, so let's begin um, just with some, some Augustinian ideas, uh, kind of Augustinian prologue. If you look at chapter 5 of the first book of Augustine's De Doctrina Christiana, Augustine argues that all created visible things are meant to be used in such a way that the invisible things of God are seen through these same created things. Far from implying a mechanistic distortion of created things, Augustine here is referring not to abuse, but that proper use of created things for which they were made in the first place. In this, the Trinitarian end implied is not an external imposition, but something rather that is written into the fabric of creation itself. Creation, and in a special way, the human person for Augustine, is made in God's image and likeness. And still, this does not make it the subject of enjoyment itself. Creation itself, created things, are not the subject of enjoyment. For Augustine, Augustine allows for a kind of enjoyment of the other here, other persons, perhaps, uh, in an authentic act of love. But all creative things, effectively, are meant to be used to enjoy the Trinity. His insistence here is premised on a kind of anticipation. For Augustine, only the Trinity is worthy of our enjoyment. And this properly ordered enjoyment imparts a kind of blessedness for Augustine. So the doctrine of signs is fundamentally a function of this world, and in relation to the Trinity, it follows the upward trajectory of faith, hope, and charity, sharing in their anticipation of beatitude, where faith's dark, mirrored vision will be replaced by a direct vision of the Lord without the intermediary of created signs. Here, hope's longing will be fulfilled with blessedness, and charity will be inflamed all the more by the immediate possession of that which before was held and understood only through the medium of signs. Another way to think about this distinction is to think about how we understand created reality, uh, certainly ourselves, but also all other kinds of created stuff. 
um, the Augustinian vision, his theological vision of creation is to view them as signs of the Trinity, which reveal the divine essence. In many cases, the way smoke reveals fire, you don't see the fire, but you see the smoke. And in a similar sense, you see created signs, which lead you to suspect, <laughs> lead you to know God, lead you to know him, even as Trinity, uh, eventually, uh, without seeing the fire itself. But at a certain point, the signs disappear in beatitude in the next life, according to Augustine, we see the living flame of charity itself. We see the living flame of God's love. And so signs yield to um, a kind of immediate contact with reality. But the way in which we interpret signs, the way in which we engage with the created world as a kind of matrix of signs is very important for Augustine. And it has to do with the way in which, in the end, our, even our moral lives are ordered as we make our way through this life. Do we appreciate other things, ourselves even, as a kind of sign, an image even, of the Trinity? Or is it more of an engine of itself? Okay, with that in mind, um, let's look at Aquinas uh, on, on God himself as a, a cause of creatures. Um, and here I'm going to talk a little bit about divine immutability, so the idea that God doesn't change, uh, but we do somehow, and uh, how that interplay between divine immutability and the, the changeable uh, quality of created being, particularly our own, plays out for Aquinas and how that relationship uh, comes to be structured. Okay. So this is from question nine in the prima pars of the Summa, if you're interested, uh, where Aquinas begins talking about this. So almost right at the very beginning of the Summa Theologiae. So defining God as immutable, St. Thomas treats the question under two articles. The first, whether God is altogether immutable, seeks to define what the claim of divine immutab immutability means and whether it can be said of God absolutely or whether or some or, or whether or not some qualification must be introduced due to God's apparent movement in scripture or his self-movement. So Aquinas acknowledges that there are texts in scripture which seem to imply that God changes, even changes his mind perhaps, or moves from one place to another. Uh, St. Thomas affirms that God is indeed immutable in an unqualified way. Uh, and here he cites a, uh, the text from Malachi 3, 6, for I, am the, for I the Lord do not change. Aquinas states that the divine immutability has, in effect, already been demonstrated in the preceding questions of the Prima Pars. Thomas makes three main points, however, in this context, in the context of question nine. First, that God as pure act lacks all potency, and thus the possibility of movement, which is a necessary result of the reduction of potency to act. This argument draws heavily on the first way uh, of question two, article three, that is Aquinas's first argument for the existence of God. But the notion of God as pure act animates all five ways, all five proofs for the existence of God that Aquinas offers in question two. The second point regards divine simplicity, uh, the second point that Aquinas makes in question nine. Composition is required for movement, says St. Thomas, but God is simple and cannot admit of comp composition or division. For Aquinas, there is a connection, however, between contingency and composition. Things caused by another have at their metaphysical root the composite of being and essence. The necessary being has, quote, of itself its own necessity, end quote, and his own existence. Aquinas' argument here parallels his first point, effectively stating that composition is necessary for those things that are to some degree potential. Thirdly, St. Thomas appeals to the infinite. Here, St. Thomas makes use, of a, uh, makes use of a negative demonstration. For that is not con constrained by matter, lacks finitude. Being is form in the highest sense and God is his own subsistent being. Therefore, God as pure and highest form must be not finite. Because God is infinite, has the fullness of perfection of all existence, he is incapable of acquiring anything new in a movement towards perfection, and as such, cannot change. This is a feature of Aquinas' understanding of act and potency 
as one of the most fundamental divisions of created being. For the Thomistic tradition, the idea that there's a real distinction in created beings like us, not in God, between act and potency is the root of his, under, of his understanding of the metaphysics of the person. And so to attribute that to God in some way, it's, it's not just about change or local motion, as if you would move a billiard ball from one point to another or walk across the room. It, it's about the potentiality uh, of a nature itself. What could a nature possibly do? Uh, for us, there's a wide scope of potentiality, but for God, we're dealing with a, a reality, a way of being, if you will, in which there's pure act. There's a simplicity to God, which is pure act. So without de denying divine immutability, there is a sense in which, however, we can call God self-moved. Um, and here again, this is arising in some ways from Aristotle's natural anthropology uh, of the person uh, to be a rational creature. And this becomes significant when we talk about um, Aristotle, or rather Aquinas's understanding of the person as an image of the Trinity. To be a rational creature means to be a self-moved creature. And so if God is a rational, as a, a, a subsistent rational nature, or at least contains subsistences like that, we'll get to that when we talk about the Trinity, it's actually not inappropriate to talk about him as being self-moved in some way, but in, if without any shred of potency. It's just pure act. So if we extend movement to the acts of understanding, Aquinas says, the acts of understanding, willing, and loving, we can say that God knows and loves himself. We can call him self-moving, but not in the sense of a thing which exists in potentiality. As essay subsistence, God can be said to be the source of his own movement, already containing the fulfillment of said movement in the full realization of his essay and his actual ends, that is his essence and his actual act of existence. In the second article, question nine, Aquinas argues that God alone is immutable and that those things which are not God, creatures, are dependent on him and exist in at least some degree of potentiality. Only the first principle or first mover can be said to be immutable because it is he alone that is esse tantum and entirely free from composition and dependency. So he's being alone, uh, in a sense, he's, he's the act of being alone. As the source of all being, he holds in being all that is, and is related to composite reality as an artist is to his art. St. Thomas' underst understanding of divine immutability is derived in large part from his understanding of the simplicity of God. Simplicity is mentioned explicitly in the second of the three points raised in favor of divine immutability, question nine. His first point invokes simplicity as well, however. In his first article on the simplicity of God, Aquinas expands on some of the implications of his arguments for God's existence, particularly the first way, again referring back to question two of the prima pars. If God is first mover and the first being, he cannot have any admixture of body or potentiality within him. To be fully act is to be simple, lacking the potency of matter or potency of any kind. And this is necessitated by his status as the act that reduces all created potency. So even here, Aquinas is hinting at something that he'll say later that our being, certainly in the first sense, the fact that we are rather than we are not, but then the other ways in which we might choose to be, sometimes that's called second act. So now that I exist, I have to decide what to do with it, right? Um, I have to decide how to act. And so there's a whole sphere of potentiality open to me. But God's act is behind all of those acts of mine, uh, the act of existence itself, and then whatever it else is I choose to do with my life, his causality, his motion, his act of being uh, is sustaining all of that for Aquinas. So in asserting that God is simple, Aquinas is claiming that he is fundamentally non-composite. The most fundamental level of composition is the distinction between the essence of a thing and its being. And here's a quote from Aquinas, um, uh, or rather, I'm sorry, from Rudy Tivelde, who's a Thomistic scholar, uh, about this distinction. 
The difference between God and all things that are caused by him is formally expressed by removing from God the type of com composition that is proper to things as effects of God, the composition of essence and essay. The way of simplicitas, the way of simplicity, leads ultimately to the identity in God of essence and being. So Tevelde indicates here um, something that Aquinas is quick to affirm, that while there's a real distinction between essence and existence in us, that is to say, there's a distinction between humanity in general and this man, a distinction between humanity and Socrates as a subsisting man. Um, that distinction between essence and existence doesn't exist for God. Um, you could make a logical distinction, maybe a conceptual distinction, but there's no actual distinction in the way that there is between the concept humanity and each one of us as subsistent realities. This becomes important to, to bear in mind later when we speak about um, the idea of personal subsistence in the Trinity and how we could say that there's a distinction in unity within God using the language of personhood and subsistence without making a, an essential distinction. Uh, that disrupts the divine simplicity. Okay, so the implications of this are manifold and exceed the scope of our present um, conversation. But for our purposes, it is the heart of divine simplicity and deeply related to the immutability of God. That is the fact that God's essence and existence are one. It follows from this that God is not contained in a genus, for example, uh, one of the Aristotelian categories and lacking in accidental properties. God doesn't have accidents the way we do. In his commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics, Aquinas is careful to say that divine being, God himself, is outside the category of metaphysics itself. There are later thinkers, um, uh, Suarez uh, and, and Descartes and some others, who will, who will try to put um, divine being and created being in the same box, so to speak, which causes all sorts of problems. Uh, but here it's important to notice that Aquinas is just not allowing God's being to be contained or constrained or circumscribed by the types of categories and distinctions, as important as they are, which characterize our understanding of created being, our understanding of ourselves and other created stuff. Okay. So St. Thomas concludes from all this that God is altogether simple, demonstrating that God is simple in all things from the preceding articles in question three. Building on this, he further explicates the implications of the conclusions of Article 3 of Question 2. If God is first being and first cause, then he cannot be composite. Every composite is derived of things more primary. The two or more things combined to make, to make the composite must precede it, and furthermore, could not combine themselves without an outside cause. Further, all composites must have some potentiality, for at least each one of the parts is potential to the whole. It is this article that he cites directly in his discussion of divine immutability. In truth, we must say that simplicity is necessary for immutability, because anything marked by the, compos the composite distinction between being and essence retains a degree of potentiality. Even the angels have potentiality of location and the ordering of their powers to an end. Well, they lack many of our other distinctions, like uh, matter, for instance, or other forms of embodiment like that. Uh, they do have a kind of potentiality, even to their intellects, even to the way they understand things. Um, so St. Thomas's third point in defense of divine immutability appeals to the, inf the infinitude of God. While Thomas relies on both simplicity and infinitude to demonstrate immutability, he spends more time on simplicity, uh, which is transcendent and emphasizes the apophatic, we might say. Um, so here's a quote um, from Rudy Tivelde again. Uh, the two principal features of the divine mode of being are simplicitas, simplicity, and perfection, which are presupposed by all the other attributes of the divine essence, such as immutability, eternity, infinity, and so on. So all this is to say that uh, a certain understanding of divine being as completely simple uh, and totally perfect, we might say, lacking any composition 
any potentiality which might become more perfect uh, allows God to stand as an exemplar over all creation, the sort of pattern, if you will. Uh, earlier, Aquinas described God as a kind of architect, if you will, in creating creating us, certainly, in all of creation. He's using, in a sense, the what Aquinas would call the divine ideas, or um, we can say, we can name them analogically as goodness, truth, oneness, things like that, uh, qualities, if you will, that are nameable within the simplicity of the divine essence. But when you break them out into created subsistences, created realities, they reflect and refract the goodness and truth of God, his oneness, his unity, his simplicity, his beauty. All of that is said in a multitude of limited ways as a kind of symphony by creation uh, in praise of God and as a reflection of who he is. Okay, so um, just to conclude before we talk about uh, the human person and human acts in light of all this, um, the immutability of God is of central theological importance for Aquinas, an essential doctrine of the Church Fathers. Divine immutability has been enshrined in several ecumenical councils, in case you were doubting it, um, in one way or another. Lateran IV, for example, is explicit in attributing immutability to all three persons of the Trinity. As we have seen, the immutability of God indicates the difference between God and his creation. Aquinas saw divine immutability as an essential philosophical truth that should be upheld in its own right, but, is all, but it also has implications for Christology and soteriology. Christology is the, the theology of, of the incarnation, soteriology, the theology of salvation, is how we're saved through Christ. According to Father Gilles Marie, uh, who's a Dominican Thomist and a Trinitarian theologian, uh, the councils, we just cited Lateran four in particular, propose three main principles regarding divine immutability. Uh, the first is the perfect consubstantiality of the three persons in their divine unity. Uh, so that is to say that there's none, there, the Father is not less God than the Son, or vice versa, and likewise for the Holy Spirit. All three are equally God and equally simple. Uh, the union, uh, without, ad, without mixture and without confusion of the divinity and the humanity in the person of Christ, um, again, is something that divine immutability will affirm. So the incarnation doesn't create a change or evolution, let's say, of the divine nature. That would be another claim. Uh, the third and final one is that the simplicity and transcendence of the three divine persons in their action of creation and redemption is equally affirmed. Uh, so all three persons as equally God, um, they don't lose anything of their, of their divinity. Uh, they don't start to change, right, uh, in the context of salvation history. So when you think about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his second coming at the end of time, the sending of the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the persons of the Trinity aren't changing somehow or becoming creatures themselves. Now, um, if you hadn't thought to question that, that's to your credit. <laughs> um, but I will say, and I'll say a little bit about, uh, more about this as I continue, and we could talk about it in the Q&A if you're interested. But um, there have certainly been, been movements more recently in, in theology in the last 200 years or so. Uh, to collapse, let's say, the distinction uh, between God and the world and between the Trinity, let's say, uh, what uh, Karl Rahner in particular was particularly fond of saying that the imminent Trinity is the economic Trinity, that is the, the Trinity of the missions, uh, the Son incarnate and then dwelling within the human heart is the same as the, the economic Trinity, if you will, that is the, the Trinity of persons in relation to each other. That's not false, of course, um, but if the distinction between God and the world is collapsed, um, in, in an attempt, let's say, to create a more personalist spirituality, right? Uh, um, this is a feature of a lot of modernist thought also in the early, in the early 20th century, uh, a sense in which God is radically imminent. Um, there are many, many problems with that, none the least of which would be latter and four. Um, but uh, not only does Aquinas not adopt that model, but he has his own way of talking about, let's say, the, the personal intimacy of the spiritual life as a Trinitarian participation. Um, so we're going to get to that in the second half of the talk. Um, but that's where all this is headed. Uh, let's see, let's see the bigger picture. Okay, uh, well, let's talk about uh, the human person as, as an actor. Um, so we've already, um, we've talked a lot about of potency and, how, and why God doesn't have it, <laughs> that he's pure act. 
But if we look at ourselves, we have an awful lot of it. We have an awful lot of potentiality, a lot of things we could do with our lives, a lot of things we could be. Not all of them good, many of them good, um, but we also have a radical capacity for um, undermining our own teleology, let's say. Um, this is a particular feature, I think, of, of being a human person as rational. Uh, Aquinas and Aristotle would say that a hallmark of reason, right, is this ability to think about universals. That becomes really important for Aquinas when he talks about beatitude and our journey, as it will, in grace towards our final end in communion with God. But, but no other creature is really suited for that in the way that a rational creature is. Uh, but because we can think about universals, we can make a lot of plans for ourselves, uh, some of which aren't very good. Um, but a principle to keep in mind here is something that Aquinas will call, building on Aristotle, connaturality. Uh, so if you think back to the distinction between first and second act that I mentioned before, so we have Socrates existing, right? Uh, is a human, this category of humanity, then you have the individuated man. But then you have the individuated man's moral life. So good Socrates or bad Socrates, right? As, as the case may be. Uh, one of those things, the first, the good Socrates, let's say, um, is connatural. That is, it's a fitting perfection of his nature as a human person. But there's other things, right? There's, there's other ways of being, perhaps, uh, which aren't as perfected and are actually undermining and are not connatural, but remain possibilities, right? Um, other types of animals uh, that lack the capacity for universals, although they might have an awful lot of, let's say, cognitive complexity, even in some cases, um, have it a little bit easier, we might say, right? Uh, the, the real capacity for moral evil isn't there in the same way. Uh, you have iterations of natural evil, um, all sorts of uh, ways in which original sin is warped, even the fabric of creation itself. But that capacity for moral evil is, is, is our issue, right? In a special way. Okay, so I want to spend some time talking about the idea of virtue as a way of being fulfilled as a human person, and also eventually as a way of acting as an image of God, and ultimately as an image of the Trinity. Okay. So when considering the moral life of the human person, Aquinas draws on a long classical tradition that reflected on so-called morality as a broad category of both philosophy and theology, rather than a limited account of regulations that either mandate or prevent certain individual human behaviors. This classical approach was intended to offer insight into the fulfillment and purpose of the human person. So the language that Aquinas develops and that we have saw in the previous section, where God is self-subsistent and lacks the distinction between essence and existence, and creatures, rather, are marked by a certain potentiality, that relationship forms an essential vocabulary for understanding the way in which Aquinas approaches the scope of this subject, the subject of morality as an account of the human person essentially, and the scope of potentiality that perfects the essential character of this same person. In essence, human nature, regardless of who or which individuals might possess it, has definitive characteristics that can be understood in the language of causality, which knows natures by means of concepts such as formality and the efficient means by which their proper finalities are reached. For Aquinas, Aristotle, for Aquinas and Aristotle, the category of virtue captures the dynamic aspect of created being, by which a rational agent has the capacity to specify an end or object for a given action, and to move itself towards that end through the actuation of its intrinsic powers and potentialities. Although the human person can only understand and justify such self-actuating activities under the aspect of some good, or at least a perceived good, be the good real or perhaps only, only imaginary, the value of such an action as authentically human is measured according to the degree to which it actually perfects human nature. In this understanding, morality is a measure of essential authenticity by which the self-actuation of an individual is measured according to the standard of human nature considered in itself, understood essentially after abstracting from the particularities of its many individual instantiations. So we can ask of Socrates, uh, good Socrates and bad Socrates, 
how human are those actions? Uh, and the measure is the essence of humanity itself. The nature itself provides the teleology. So the distinction between universals and particulars remains important for understanding Aquinas' approach to morality, therefore, because it grounds the self-actuated perfectibility of the individual against the backdrop of divine exemplarity. As we discussed in the first section of this paper, the divine nature itself serves as a kind of exemplary cause for God's own artistic production of contingent natures in the act of creation. When considering the moral actions of individually existing substrates of these same natures, the form and finality that guides the perfectibility of each individual is measured according to the essential character of its nature, which in turn is measured against the archetypes provided by the divine nature and its attributes. So good or bad Socrates is measured according to the standard of humanity, and then ultimately the divine nature itself as the, the realm in which those actions are rendered intelligible uh, as, as a value or not, as perfected or not, as connatural or not. All of this is to say that for Aquinas, it is ultimately divine exemplarity that allows the moral life of human persons to be understood in terms that transcend the deontological legalism of so many modern approaches to moral action. In this regard, the abstraction found in metaphysical language, for example, although it can appear distant from experience, is in fact able to infuse experience with a meaningful referent to something beyond itself. Appreciating his, um, this dimension of Aquinas' thought ultimately imparts an analogical appreciation of the relevance divine being has for the practical and experiential dimension of human life. So having said all that, I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about um, the inner life of the Trinity itself. Now all of this is to say that what we've said so far pertains to human nature itself, whether or not that human nature has been caught up uh, in the reality of grace or not. Um, but in order to understand grace, in order to understand what's happening to us in the spiritual life, in order to understand what's happening to us as we're drawn towards beatitude, we have to first understand the exemplar. Uh, as divine simplicity, for example, uh, divine immutability is important for understanding human acts in a natural sense as an exemplar cause. Uh, so too, the, the Trinitarian um, relatedness, let's say, of the divine nature forms an important backdrop for understanding human moral acts that are divinized uh, and that are caught up in a new form of communion with the divine. Um, okay. So here I'd like to continue talking about the idea of subsistence, which we've come back to a, a few times. But here, um, for Aquinas, he's building on the Augustinian tradition again, but there's a deep connection between the, his understanding of personhood and the way in which that shapes the inner life of the Trinity and the idea of subsistence. So this is all relevant to us. I mean, if we define ourselves as subsistent persons, if we use the word person about ourselves, um, we're saying something, at least implicitly, that's Trinitarian, at least Trinitarian in its possibilities, right? Um, if not in actuality uh, for some. Okay, um, so for St. Thomas, uh, the metaphysical question, if you will, of the triune God is framed by two errors. Uh, so he starts out his treatment of the Trinity uh, about question 27 of the Prima Pars uh, with these two errors. The first is of Sibelius, and the second is Arius. Uh, so both of these are sort of classical heresies from the patristic period. Um, so, if in the case, um, so if in the case of the Trinity, analogical language is not allowed its full play, one runs the significant risk of misconstruing this mystery as either a diversity of essence, that would be Arius, or an essential unity without real distinction, as in the case of Sibelian modalism. So Arius, just for context, denied the divinity of Christ. Um, he, he said that Christ was the, the first creature, let's say, right? Uh, now that maintains divine simplicity, uh, for sure, but at what cost? Right? Um, <laughs> an awful lot of cost to us. Um, Sibelian modalism is kind of the other end of the, the spectrum. So there, um, you have a unity, you maintain unity, uh, but you just don't allow the persons of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to be really distinct in any meaningful sense. So you have, uh, you have God, uh, and that's just sort of 
the, the persons might be modes, let's say, or just manifestations, or maybe they're only distinguished historically. That is, the stuff that God does outside of himself, uh, for instance, the incarnation, the sending of the Spirit, those are the only places in which there's any real meaningful distinction between divine persons. Both of those options are super heretical, uh, so don't think them, uh, whatever you do. Um, <laughs> okay, so Aquinas cites uh, two common mistakes in this regard, Arianism and Sabellianism. Uh, Aquinas claims uh, that scripture contradicts both cases, and he proceeds to demonstrate the possibility of a third option, an essential unity where act and procession ad intra uh, yield the real distinction of subsistent relations. So beginning with the human person, uh, scaling back to ourselves now uh, as an example, St. Thomas begins by distinguishing between imminent and external procession. Aquinas states that all things that proceed as outward acts have their root in an internal inward act, which proceeds within the person and corresponds to the act that remains within the agent. Aquinas uses the example of the intellect. Prior to speech, there is a verb importance, a word of the heart, which proceeds but remains within the agent. An internal procession of this kind is not necessarily separate from its point of origin. There are only two imminent processions found in an intellectual nature, according to Aquinas, that of intellect and that of will. These can be found within the human person and are used analogously in reference to imminent procession within God. Analogical language uh, is a way of scaling up, as it were, to talk about divine being by pruning away all the things that we know pertain to created being. So the, um, although within ourselves, when we distinguish, even in our act of knowing, there is a certain motion from potency to act, but we know that's not part of what God does. So that's already collapsed, we might say. Uh, but through a lot of these analogical moves, and we'll examine a few more of them here, Aquinas is able to end up, as it were, with this idea of subsistent relation, uh, which is what helps him to differentiate the persons. So thus, uh, Thomas says that, quote, the more perfectly that which proceeds within an intelligible procession proceeds, the more closely it is one with the source whence it proceeds. Uh, so again, through that same kind of analogical reminiscence, you have, um, you have this idea of procession, but also unity, because it's God we're talking about and not ourselves. In the human intellect, the closeness of the procession to its source increases with the actualization of understanding, as the intellect is made one with its object through the act of understanding. But in God, this unity of imminent procession is supremely perfect. Now let's stop there and just examine that. Um, this is actually really important, as we'll see at, when I, at, the, at the end of our time, which is creeping up on the uh, um, that uh, this idea of understanding is actually really important for Aquinas' understanding of Trinitarian indwelling, that we have the capacity to understand things, and we get closer to them when we understand them. So when I understand um, a science or something like that, when I, when I have the principles within myself, there's a certain uh, closeness, if you will, a habitual unity, if you will, with those principles. Now, there's still a lot of distinctions within my own grasp of those, obviously. There's still a lot of act and potency, and my process of getting to that point involved a lot of act and potency, too. But the point is that, at the end, you have unity, right? Um, so in a supreme way, that's present in God without any distinction at all. But what Aquinas is going to say is that when God offers himself, as it were, to our own intellect and will as object, uh, which is what happens in grace, we're able, we're, we become capable of a kind of Trinitarian communion, which surpasses even our natural closeness, uh, according to the order of creation. Okay. Um, so in God, however, uh, this unity of imminent procession, that is the, uh, the word of the heart proceeding, the idea understood, is supremely perfect. From these two processions of intellect and will, three persons eventually emerge as subsistent relations. In one sense, a relation may be merely logical, according to Aristotle, in which the mind simply compares one thing to another. Um, that is when you make a mental association between things. You've made a relation, but it's not a real relation. 
other relations are real, uh, and that refers to actual being. Only that which is an in, which is an in, which is an inherent inclination towards the other is a real relation, according to Aquinas. So it refers to that real inclination within some actually existing thing towards something else, like um, like the tennis ball to the floor, for instance. Uh, there's a there's a relation and orientation orientation towards, and that the the orientation itself is the relation, not the tennis ball or the floor, but the fact that it's oriented in that way. Um, further, relations can be viewed as inhering in a single subject as an accident for us. It's a form of accidental being or simply as reference to another. So already in this idea of relation, there's something that doesn't require you to distinguish between substance and accidents to, in, in, to invoke that kind of distinction within the order of being. You could say relation just as simply a, a reference to another. Uh, in the former case, relations adhere as accidents and creatures in reference to something outside. Um, but as Aquinas will tell us in question 28, article two, quote, now whatever has an accidental existence in creatures, when considered as transferred to God, has a substantial existence, since all in him is his essence. Relation really existing in God has the, ex the existence of the divine essence in no way distinct therefrom. But insofar as relation implies respect to something else, no respect to the essence is signified, but rather to its opposite term. This is where it starts to get a little bit complicated, and we won't be able to explore all of Aquinas' Trinitarian theology here. Um, but the point is that he's developing this idea of relational opposition, right? uh, so that the father as principal and the son as preceding there's a kind of relation between the two which can yield a, a real distinction without implying a distinction from the essence. Um, so relations that are merely logical do not share a real relation rooted in the nature of those things concerned. Unlike the created order, there is no diversity of essence or distinction between essence and existence in the divine nature. As such, it is necessary to posit that these relations, the relations between the Trinitarian persons that are derived from the divine processions of knowing and loving cannot be logical, but are real as they are the divine essence. In these, if these relations were not real, one would be forced to propose a type of Sibelian modalism, which Aquinas ruled out earlier. Where two substances of the same species share a common nature in the created order, they are marked by real relation. Aquinas collapses this diversity into the eminently perfect and simple unity of the divine essence, rendering the previously accidental substantial. In this sense, that which proceeds in God, quote, proceeds as subsisting in a common nature, end quote. These real relations must have a substantial existence, according to Aquinas. And because they are the divine essence, they must subsist. While these relations do not in any way import composition into the divine essence, they do signify distinction. The relations are distinct regarding the opposite term. That is, paternity stands in contradistinction to filiation and vice versa. Thus, the two processions of intellect and will yield four real relations, paternity, filiation, spiration, and procession. In God, imminent relational procession is distinguished by act as imminent activity, he says. In question 28, article four, he says the following. A real relation in God can be only based on action not on any extrinsic procession, or as much as the relations of God to creatures are not real in him. Uh, here you can go back to Article 7 of Question 13 for context there. But Aquinas continues to say that real relations in God can be understood only in regard to those actions according to which there are internal and not external processions in God, end quote. 
So for example, if you tried to use uh, only the external missions, let's say of the Son and the Holy Spirit, the fact that the Word became incarnate, the fact that the Spirit was sent uh, on the apostles at Pentecost, tried to use those to distinguish Trinitarian persons within the divine essence, right? Or, or rather as sharing the common divine essence. Um, it, it wouldn't work, Aquinas says, right? Uh, you, you need real relations and not logical ones, relations that can yield subsistence in the unity of the divine essence. Um, so building on this foundation of distinct real relations, Thomas introduces the term person at this stage as a way of describing subsistence within the divine nature. He affirms the definition of Boethius. A person is, quote, an individual subsistence of a rational nature, end quote. Aquinas thinks that the word person can and should be applied to God first of all because the Athanasian Creed refers to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as persons. So it's part of the tradition on the one hand. Secondly, however, he argues that the term person can be applied to God via eminentiae, that is by, by an analogical reasoning which seeks to see God as the exemplar of all things. Thomas compares the term person to the term hypostases uh, from Eastern theology as equivalent to substance, or more specifically, suppositum, but not essence. So this is the difference here. So person really has to do with this man rather than human nature, Socrates as opposed to humanity. We don't say person of essence. Uh, we don't, when we say person, we don't mean something universal or abstract. We mean this person. So it has an awful lot to do um, with the individual, uh, you and I and Socrates too, perhaps, as um, subsistent realities, as human persons, but reflecting, as it were, uh, our creator, reflecting God as first cause and ultimately reflecting him as Trinitarian image. Um, so this allows Thomas to speak of a metaphysical grounding for real distinction within God that is the Trinitarian persons themselves, without the implication of essential diversity. Aquinas claims that person, understood in this way, signifies what is distinct in a nature as this flesh, these bones, and this soul. So applying all this um, to Trinitarian indwelling, um, just to move to close here, uh, this understanding of personhood for Aquinas is um, rooted in an understanding of the Trinity as um, three distinctly subsistent persons that are subsistent in their relational opposition. Now, all that gets very complicated, of course, but it, it yields an understanding of personhood, which is fundamentally Trinitarian. So you need two things, at least, to understand person for Aquinas. One is subsistence, that is not just humanity in general, but this man, Socrates. And you also need, in the end, at least, an understanding of the Trinity. This whole understanding of personhood as the subsistence of a rational nature reveals itself in its full form in the, the identities, let's say, of, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, so how is it that we come to have access to that? Because according to nature, we really only know God as first cause. Uh, the philosophers can know a great deal about God just through natural reason, and we can as well if we apply our minds to it. But there's something more about God that's revealed. And when we say that God has revealed himself, um, we don't just mean that he's taught us new facts about himself, but our approach, if you will, our approach to the divine is fundamentally changed. So Aquinas will say that the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love that are sort of tethered to the, the gifts of the spirit, uh, that come with the sort of package deal, if you will, the gift of sanctifying grace, that all of that in a special way, particularly in the case of the theological virtues, that God becomes the object of those virtues that are knowing and loving uh, in faith, hope, and love, uh, which those virtues reside in the powers of intellect and will for Aquinas, that, that, effective, that effectively allows us to possess him. And all of this is rooted at the end of his treatment of the Trinity in question 43 of the Prima Pars, where Aquinas talks about the missions of the, of the Spirit and the Son. And here, um, he ends his whole treatment of the Trinity with the idea of indwelling. If you want to know what grace is for Aquinas, it's Trinitarian indwelling. Uh, that is to say that you have two forms of missio or sending for Aquinas. Uh, the first is visible, 
Uh, so both the Son and the Spirit are sent visibly, and those we can read about in the Bible, right? Uh, that uh, this, the Word became incarnate, um, suffered, died, was buried, rose again on the third day, will come again at the end of time, uh, and the Holy Spirit was sent in a visible way. Um, but there's also this sense of invisible missions, uh, and that's something that happens to each one of us with the gift of sanctifying grace. So it's happened to all of you, whether you realize it or not. <laughs> Um, that is to say that the gift of sanctifying grace itself as something which uh, exists within the very essence of the human person, it doesn't change us into something that we're not. That is, it doesn't change the nature of human. Uh, it doesn't change us from humans into um, hippopotamuses or something like that, right? Uh, but what it does is unlocks, if you will, a potentiality which exceeds the scope of nature. It exceeds the proportionality of our nature. And yet we are, in fact, perfectible in that way. Uh, when Aquinas talks about happiness in the first questions of the Prima Secunde, he makes it clear that because we have this capacity for universals as rational creatures, in the end, it's only the divine essence that's good enough. Uh, we might not realize that. We might go through our whole lives being reasonably happy with lesser goods and live reasonable lives also, uh, reasonably moral lives in a, in, a normal, in, a, in a natural sense. But for Aquinas, beatitude itself is the possession Without, without signs, without the intermediary of what Augustine will call created signs, is the possession of the divine essence uh, as our end, as our perfected end. All that begins for each one of us with the indwelling of the Trinity. And so sanctifying grace as a change, if you will, um, a renovation, a renewal, an elevation, an anthropological or um, analogical amplification, if you will, of, of our nature, um, enables God to dwell, the Trinity, the whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to dwell in the powers of our soul, uh, Aquinas will say. And that's really the beginning of, um, of the whole life of grace and of our perfectibility. Because of course, potentiality, but uh, potency itself is what defines us. The fact that we're human persons isn't uh, a moral category. Uh, that is, there's no moral um, credit given out for simply subsisting as a human person, right? Uh, but acting well as a human person, uh, that's what the moral life is about for us. And where the life of grace or the spiritual life intersects with the, the morality of our nature, if you will, is where the, this indwelling of the, of the persons inhabiting, as it were, our faculties of intellect and will, and enabling us to possess God as a gift, someone who's given himself, in a sense, uh, given himself to be possessed in this way by us. Um, the, that's where our moral life in a spiritual sense dovetails and uh, in relation to our natural one. And we have a kind of supernatural perfectibility that's given to us in the order of grace in such a way that we become capable of acting as image in a full sense. Because remember, image is about personhood, right? Um, to, when we say we're in the image of God, we don't just mean that we're rational, uh, that's the beginning, but it means that we've discovered what it means to be a person. Um, now, we can know an awful lot about that just by subsisting as rational creatures. So Socrates, as a subsisting human nature, he's a person, right? Um, but we learn an awful lot about it from indwelling as well. And as much as we're an image, uh, the whole scope of our moral life is not only straightened out, as it were, uh, after the effects of sin, but elevated and amplified in a living sense, which allows us to participate in the very life of God himself as much as he's chosen in his gratuity to share something about with us. Thank you very much.